looked at the triumphal entry, and we saw how Jesus came and made his entrance into Jerusalem, an entrance that had been prophesied by Daniel uh, hundreds of years earlier, giving the exact date when he would enter into Jerusalem. And you know, it's been said that if the, the people of that, that day, if they had been reading the Bible the way they should have, but the scribes and the Pharisees had been in God's word the way they were called to be, they should have been lining the street waiting for him to come. But they missed it, and they missed it because they were biblically illiterate. We saw Jesus bring judgment against Israel. He, cle he cleansed the temple for the second time. He went into the temple, and what they had done is they had made his father's house a den of thieves. And, you know, they took the church, which was supposed to be a place where, where hurting people came and were ministered to, and they turned it into a place where hurting people came and they took their money from them. It was a place where they, they were robbing people. They were, t they were using it as an opportunity to fleece the people of God. And you know what? The Lord was, was not happy. And as he came into Jerusalem, he went straight into the temple. And, you know, the people even following him thought he was going to go into the governmental officials' offices and, and, and rule and reign. They thought, you know, when they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, we pray you, as they entered into Jerusalem. And they put the palm leaves down. They were assuming that Jesus was coming to rule and reign and to overthrow the government and to put all the Jews in charge. And they were excited about that. Save now, we pray. You know, give us the economy that we want. Save now, we pray. Help us to rule and reign. Save now, we pray. Overthrow those Roman dogs. That's the kind of Messiah we're looking for. And Jesus didn't go to the government. He went straight into the church. And he turned the tables over and he, and he basically stopped people from using his father's house as a house of merchandise. And I said last week that if Jesus came back today, would he go to the White House? I don't think so. I think he'd come to the churches and say, you guys have lost your first love. You've got your eyes off of me. You're so consumed with this world that you've missed out on what life's all about. Then we see him cursing the fig tree. We're going to see a little more about that tonight. But he cursed the fig tree. He walked by and there was a tree that was bloom it seemed to be blooming. It had all the leaves. And as he walked up to the fig tree that had all the leaves, and the leaves would always come with the fruit. When he got near to the tree, there were leaves, but there was no fruit. And that's a sign of you know, the, the church today and the world today and believers today, where outwardly we have the appearance of holiness, but there's no fruit. And you know what? We're not called to judge one another, but I think we can be fruit inspectors. Amen? And you know what? If you're a Christian, you should be bearing fruit. You weren't saved to be a pew potato. Amen? God didn't save you so you could just, you know, be on the cruise ship to heaven. God saved you so that He could use you for His glory. Amen? And so that's why you're here. You were born again, and if you're breathing in and out, God's not through with you. So God wants to use you mightily. So he cursed the fig tree, he, and fig tree in the Bible is always a representation of Israel. We'll look a little more at that tonight. So now tonight, what are we going to see? Time willing, Lord willing, we're going to look at the power of faith. We're going to look at the necessity for forgiveness in the life of a believer. We're going to see people question the authority of Jesus Christ, something that still goes on today. And again, if time willing, we'll look at the parable of the vineyard and the, and the vineyard owner, which is a picture of God. So let's pick up where we left off last time. We'll be in verse 20 of Mark chapter 11. It says, Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Now, in verse 14, the day before, on Monday morning, the last week of Jesus' life on earth, Jesus passed by the fig tree. He examined the fig tree, just like I told you. When he saw there was no fruit, he cursed it. Why? Because a tree without fruit is of no value, just as a Christian without fruit is of no value to the kingdom of God. And he cursed the tree... And so, they, and, and the scary part is that each night they would have to leave Jerusalem. They're ministering to this huge Passover crowd. I told you last week that the city of Jerusalem would swell to a couple million people at the time of Passover as they would come for this great feast. And Jesus was there ministering to the people. But in the evening, he would go back to Bethany. And he would spend the night, I believe, at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who would be raised from the dead. And so they're coming back down the Mount of Olives the next morning. This is Tuesday morning, just three days before Jesus' crucifixion. And they walk by the fig tree, and when they see the fig tree, they're actually amazed because the Lord had cursed it, and it was dead. Now, I also find it interesting, I, I wrote this down in my notes, that the Lord walked by and cursed the fig tree, and when He did, again, it's a picture of Israel, and when He was the expersion cast on Israel, then He went to Jerusalem, He ministered all day, and He had to leave in the evening. You know, when Jesus was born, there was no room for him in Bethlehem. And when Jesus was about to be crucified, there was no room for him in Jerusalem. It seemingly nobody had room for Jesus Christ. And you know what? The same is being said today, that very many people walk around living a life with no room for Jesus Christ. We give him the leftovers. You know, if I have time on Sunday, maybe I'll go to church. The Bible says we're to, to seek first the kingdom of God, as we sang tonight. Amen? Seek first, not last, first. 
the kingdom of God. And so as they walked by, they saw again that it had, been, that it had withered away at its roots. Look at verse 21. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the, the tree which you have cursed has withered away. You know what? They look at it and they see it that it is gone. And Jesus had condemned the tree, but now they see that when, once a tree is condemned, it is of absolutely no value. He'd gone up on close inspection and they found that it was of no, of no good to them. And you know what's interesting to me is that we today need to make sure that we're not looking to anything else to find our peace. We're not looking for anything else. They saw the fig tree, whether the fig tree is a picture of Israel. And he's going to tell them, don't put your faith in Israel, but put your faith in Almighty God. And what happened when they saw the fig tree was withered away. You've got to remember in those days, that was one of the main staples. That was the main ways that they ate. And now the fig tree had withered. And these trees were 20 to 20 feet, 25 feet wide and 20 to 25 feet tall. This was not a little bush. It's a big tree. The thing died overnight because God exposed, Jesus Christ exposed it from the inside out. And the tree was cursed because of its fruitful, fruitlessness and evidence of, his, of hypocrisy. Now we too need to be aware of the peril of fruitlessness. Now do you remember the first time, when's the first time we see a fig tree in the Bible? Who remembers? When's the first time you see a fig tree in the Bible? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. What happened that caused them to go to a fig tree? They had sinned. And what did they do? They wanted to cover their sin with the leaves from the fig tree. And Adam came to the fig tree in the Garden of Eden, not looking for fruit, but looking for leaves to cover his nakedness. And that's a tendency of humanity. We try to cover up our nakedness or our sin with outward activity. He thought, well, if I just cover myself up, then I won't be a sinner anymore. The reality is, you cover yourself up, you're still a sinner. Because the problem is not an outward problem, it's an inward problem. And we try to do things like, you know, I'll work for the Red Cross, or I'll donate my time and money to charity, or I'll go to church on Sunday. We try to cover inward sin with outward activity and works of righteousness. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit will produce a changed heart. Because we know what happened is that they, tried, they covered themselves up with leaves, but yet they were still ashamed. And what did Jesus do? What did God do? God the Father slain an animal. He killed an animal and covered, they took the... the covering of the animal to cover themselves up. The first time we see the shedding of blood in the Bible is for the covering of sin. You know what? It's a picture of what Jesus would do a long time later. Amen? So right in Genesis, you see the first time the shedding of blood is for the covering of sin, and it's pointing to the ultimate Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The fig tree is a representation of Israel. Had long been fruitless, was now about to face judgment. It was dried up from the roots. It was no longer fit for food. You know what they did with fig trees that that didn't bear fruit? They burned them. So guess what? Israel was no longer fit for food. It was no longer fruitful. And so guess what? It was now going to face the judgment of God. Do you know that, ju- that, that less than 40 years after Jesus cursed the fig tree, that, that Israel ceased to exist? In A.D. 70, Titus Epiphanes, Titus Epiphanes came into Israel and wiped it out. Put it all the way down to the ground. And it was, it was no longer a nation from A.D. 70 all the way until 1948. So it's amazing that when the Lord curses something, get ready. And when they walked by, they were surprised that the Lord had cursed it, and it had dried up and withered that quickly. It's also interesting to me that the Levitical priesthood was established in, in Numbers 17. I know it's one of those books you guys read all the time. But in the book of Numbers, chapter 17, verse 8, the Lord established the priesthood by having all of the twelve tribes of Israel. They came in and they each brought in a rod. And with the rods, rods that they had in their hand, they put them down, and the Lord caused fruit to grow out of a rod, out of Aaron's rod. It's in Numbers 17, verse 8. So out of this rod, it it blossomed and it grew fruit. And they knew that that meant that Aaron and his descendants would be the priests. Now it's interesting to me that the priesthood goes away because there's no fruit. The priesthood was established in Numbers 17, 8 because there was fruit. And now it's going to be taken away from Israel because there is no fruit. And we see it in the fig tree. I know I'm I'm dwelling on this a little bit, but it's, it's awesome to me when you see it. So a just punishment for the priest that had abused their position, their self-righteousness, they were being thieves, they were power mongers, also point to the coming judgment of the nation Israel, which I just shared with you. In in, uh, Mark chapter 11, it says again here, we see them proclaim judgment upon Israel and the Jewish priesthood itself. In Matthew 24, we're going to see the fig tree one more time. And the fig tree there, it says, in Matthew 24, 32, that when that fig tree comes in bloom again, what's going to happen? talking about this generation shall not pass away till the coming of the Son of Man. When did the fig tree come in bloom one more time? It came at May 14, 1948. So the Lord actually prophesied about the fig tree coming in bloom again, even before Israel had been destroyed the first time. 
That's our God. Amen? He knew it was going to be destroyed once, and he knew it was going to be reformed all that many years later. Amazingly, he prophesies, and I love that. And you know what? If people aren't reading the Bible, they wonder what's going on around them. You know, my wife was watching TV the other day on CNN, and she turned to me, and they were showing all the stuff going on in Israel and Palestine and everything. And she turned to me, and she said, we're not going to be grandparents, are we? And you know what? It is rapture season. Amen? No one knows the day or the hour, but you know what? Be ready. Because every time you watch the news, it's just like watching the Bible in action. Amen? You go, man, there it is. Oh, there it is again. Oh, there it is again. I'm like, she looks and we're not going to be great. I said, well, only God knows for sure, but I hope not. Amen? Because that means I'll be in the presence of Almighty God. And I can't wait to get there. It's going to be good. Verse 22. So Jesus said to him, have faith in God. So he was astonished by the fact that the tree had been cursed and it withered. And he says to him, have faith in God. You might think, now what? What does that mean? Why does he tell him, have faith in God? Instead of expounding on the fig tree and what it meant, he turned to him and wanted him to know that God can do anything. Amen? If he walks by and curses a fig tree, that fig tree's done. Amen? God says something one time. God doesn't have to say something ten times. We don't have to to beg him fifty times. When God says it once, that's it. And he says, have faith in God. And the tense here implies a constant faith. Not based on circumstances or the greatness of the obstacles before us, but it's a constant faith. The object of their faith is key. Their faith should not be in Israel. Why? Because Israel is going to go away. Their faith should not be in the priest. Why? Because the priests have just been told, you're out of a job. You guys are done, as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. Their faith should not be in the temple, because one stone would not stand upon the other. Their faith should not be in feng shui. Amen? Right? Hey, I was reading the good times. I don't know why I do this to myself, but I grab the good times, and I'm flipping through there. What a pathetic paper that is. But I'm reading through this thing. And, and they've, got, you know, the, they've got a big seminar in feng shui, how to have the stuff in your room to have the greatest chi and positive energy. Man, it just breaks your heart, though. I mean, people are actually going and paying money to figure out how to you know, turn their chairs to have the greatest chi. It's weak. I mean, they need Jesus, amen? They don't need chi, they need Jesus. And people are falling into all these traps. And right next to it, had fire walking and, and you know, oneness spirit with the world and Mother Earth and all this stuff. And then I had a big article about, about November 1st is the great coming out day. So you need to come out and proclaim your homosexuality, you know, your perversion to the whole world. Let them all know your, your perversion. You know, I mean, that's the world we live in today. Amen? That's what we live in. And it was really sad. I read this big article about Santa Cruz's most beloved holiday, Halloween. Halloween? Halloween, you mean the day, that the most wicked, perverse day? It's Satan's holiday, by the way. And again, Dave's, Pastor Dave's opinion. Satan's holiday. Out of the pit of hell, Halloween. Halloween is, it was, it originally was All Saints Eve. Now it's a day where, again, you know, you know what jack-o'-lanterns were originated from? Jack-o'-lanterns, when you carve a jack-o'-lantern and put it out in front of your house, you're letting the world know that evil spirits are welcome into your home. Hey, Satan, we just want you to know that You'll be, you'll be welcome in our house. So let's carve some jack-o'-lanterns and put them out in front of our house. Tell Satan he's welcome. It's the day that the most children are kidnapped and sacrificed to Satan. It's an absolute fact. We battle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and evil force of darkness in high places. I get in trouble every year when I say this. But as Christians, instead of trick-or-treating, we probably ought to be on our knees praying. Amen? And I, you know, I say it in youth group, and I'd have five people leave the church every time I did it. But you know what? I mean, we need to speak our convictions. Amen? And if you want to have your kids trick-or-treat, I'll pray for you, all right? But, but God bless you, and I love you anyway, all right? But our faith is to be in our sovereign God, our Lord and Savior alone, not in, the, not in the oneness with the universe, not in the stars, not in the temple, not in the priest, not in Calvary Chapel, not in Pastor Dave, but in Jesus Christ. Amen? Him alone. Everything else will fail you. Everything else will, will cause you to be disturbed. Everything else will, will leave you wanting more. But he says, have faith in God, verse 23 and 24. He says, For as surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that these things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. One of the most misinterpreted verses in the whole Bible. People all the time say, you just got to believe it. If you just believe, and they'll claim this verse right here. The Bible says you can tell the mountain. Now realize where Jesus is when he says this. He's on the Mount of Olives, and he's getting ready to go down into Jerusalem. As you look out the Mount of Olives, you see the Dead Sea. He's letting them know, no obstacle is too great for our God. Amen? He said, you know what? If you ask that if it was according to my will, this mountain will be moved into the sea. Not very often that it's according to God's will that mountains need to be moved. Amen? But there are obstacles in your life that may seem like mountains. Maybe you've lost your job. Nobody's hiring. Your whole industry is a mess. Could God move that mountain? The answer is yes. 
You know, maybe there's a sickness in your family or in your home, something that seems overwhelming. The doctors have given you a certain amount of time to live. Can God move that mountain? The answer is yes. And you know what? We pray according to His will always. Not my will, but thy will be done. Throughout the Bible, mountains are often used, especially in the Old Testament, as a picture of a great obstacle in someone's path. And he's teaching the apostles that no obstacle is too great for him. No obstacle is too great for God as we walk according to his perfect will. Do you know in Matthew, in, earlier in Matthew 12, some of you were here when we went through Matthew, the scribes and the Pharisees came seeking something. Signs and wonders. The world today is out seeking signs and wonders. What did Jesus say? He said, a perverse and wicked generation seeks after a sign. Amen? When people came to him seeking a sign, you know what he gave them? What did he give them? He gave them the word. Amen? He didn't give them a sign. He gave them the word. And when people come to you seeking a sign, give them the word. And who is the word? It's Jesus Christ. So we don't need to give people signs and wonders. We don't need to be barking in the spirit or rolling the ground or getting drunk and putting in drunk tanks or any of this other garbage that's going on in the church today. We need to be seeking first the kingdom of God and be falling on our face before Him and hungering for the Word because that's how we grow. And you know what's awesome? That there are no limits. Our faith is in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and we are able to pray according to His will, not according to our will. Just remember that prayer doesn't get our will done in heaven, but it gets God's will done on earth. Amen? A lot of times we pray, we want, God, we want to change God's mind. That's not it. It's not to change God's mind, it's to change our hearts and to conform our heart and our will to His will. Verse 24. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them, and you will have them. It says in James 5.16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Praying in faith will always align my will with the sovereign will of God. How do you know God's will? You know, that's probably the number one question I get as a pastor. And it's a question I've had myself. How do I know God's will for my life? How many of you ever had that question in your own mind before? Raise your hand. How do I know? How do I know where I'm supposed to live? How do I know what job I'm supposed to take? How do I know who I'm supposed to marry? How do I know what God's gift is in my life? How do I know He wants to use me in the church? How do I know? We know by faith. And how do we increase our faith? Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and... Hearing by the Word of God. Read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? We've got to get in the Bible. If you want to know what God's plan is for your life, Read the Bible. We sit and we go get counsel from psychologists. We ask our friends what they think. We, we watch TV and we do all these things seeking counsel and our Bible sitting there collecting dust. We need to crack that thing open and let God speak to us. You know what? I will pray when it comes to major decisions. I will pray and ask God to specifically give me the answer from His Word and He has every single time. It's amazing to me. You say, wait a minute, this Bible's thousands of years old. How in the world could you have... Because it's not a book... It's the living, breathing Word of God. Amen? And so the more we spend in this, more time we spend in this, the more understanding we'll have of God's plan. The purpose of prayer, again, is not to get man's will done on earth, or man's will done in heaven, but God's will done on earth. And so it, when you read this and you see it say, you know what, don't doubt in your heart, remember where faith comes from. It comes from being in the Word. And don't make the mistake of thinking, if I, it's not faith in faith, it's faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? You put your faith in anything else, it will fail you. Verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven also may forgive you your trespasses. Now, as Christians, one of the big keys to being a Christian is faith, and another one is forgiveness. As Christians, we need not to harbor resentment toward anybody. You guys all know the story of the parable of the, of the, the man, it's in the book of Matthew, where he comes in and he, desire, and he says, finds a man who, who owns him 60, basically the equivalent of 60 million denarii. Amount you could never, ever, ever in your lifetime earn no matter what you did. And the man comes in before his master, and his master sees his repentant heart, and he forgives him. Do you know the story? The man goes out and he finds another guy who owns him 100 denarii. Now he owes 60 million denarii and he is forgiven. He finds a man that owes him 100 denarii. He grabs a hold of him, and he sends him in to be tortured till he'll give him his 100 denarii. Now, the Lord says we're to forgive others as Christ forgave us. Amen? And, what, and it says that when the master found out what this man who he had forgiven the debt of 60 million denarii did, he cast him into prison to be tortured until he could pay his debt. It's very clear what that parable is about. That you know what? We're to forgive others as Christ forgave us. How much has Christ forgiven you? Everything. Amen? All your sin. And yet we will look at someone else and not have a heart of forgiveness. And it's a difficult thing to do. But we are called to forgive. And it says, 
anything against anyone. That means unbelievers. If an unbeliever has treated you wrong, forgive them. You know what? You don't overcome evil with evil. You overcome evil with good. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Yet we, we want to get even. Those of you who are here Wednesday night, that's a treacherous story of Jacob's daughter, Dinah. She gets to be a teenager. She decides she wants to go out and see the daughters of the land, and she ends up getting raped. She ends up getting raped by, him, by a man named Shechem. And Shechem and his father come back to try to arrange a marriage between Dinah and Shechem. Now, if someone showed up, first of all, if, so, if someone raped my, uh, you know what? Pastor Dave is a forgiving man, but it would have to be the grace of God. Because I know me in my flesh. Now, the guy shows up at his house and says, oh, by the way, yeah, I raped your daughter, but here's the deal. I want to give you some money, and then I just want to keep her. What do you think? That guy would be gumming his food the rest of his life. Amen? I just, I don't think so. And I'm going, where's your house? Drag him by his ear and go get my daughter back, Right? And you know what happens is that his brothers come in, and they're not very happy. And so what his brothers do is his brothers say, well, we'll let you be married. You know, you married our daughters, you married your daughters. He said, okay, we'll do it, but you guys all have to be circumcised. So all these guys go out and get circumcised, and three days after their circumcision, when they're laying around in pain, it says that Jacob's sons go out and slay all these guys, kill them all. Now, that was not God's highest. Amen? Forgiveness is God's highest. But these guys went with a sword and killed everybody. Shechem was chapped, right? He got, he got throat slit. Now, that's not God's highest. That's not God's will. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. When we see God bring vengeance, it's by God's hand. Let, let, let's let God bring vengeance. I'm, aren't you glad that you don't get what you deserve? Amen? You know, when my kids say that, I, I, I don't deserve this. Whoa, stop. Would you like what you deserve? I don't think. What do we deserve? Hellfire. Amen? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Separation from Almighty God for all eternity. I don't want what I deserve, and I need to have a forgiving heart toward those, who, especially those who do not know God, but also those within the church. It says, if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So we need to have a heart of faith and a heart of forgiveness. Now we're going to look at them question the authority of Jesus Christ. Again, something that's happening every single day. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and He was... And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now Jesus, again, there's fear there on the part of the apostles, but the Lord has no fear. Now what had he just done the day before? He had cleansed the temple. He'd walked in there. He had turned all the tables over. He stopped them from walking through and selling merchandise in the temple. He took charge, and he was the authority in the temple. And now that he comes back into the temple the next day, and here are the chief priests and the scribes and the elders who think they run the temple, and they say, oh, there's that, who does he think he, we're going to go talk to him. And that's pretty much the attitude they have. So they come to Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the Passover, the Lamb, right? They come up to him, and here's what they have to say when talking to Jesus Christ. And they said to him, by what authority do you do these things, and who gave you this authority to do these things? They come up to Jesus Christ and basically ask Him, so who do you think you are anyway? Man. Now, should they have known who He was? Who are the scribes? They're the ones that transcribe the Bible, the Old Testament. Praise the Lord that they did that, amen? And we wouldn't have it. But, you know, God used them to transcribe. But as they wrote down the law, they didn't get it. There are a lot of people that walk around with a Bible that do not know the Jesus Christ of the Bible, Amen? It's not about the laws. It's not about the rules. It's not about the rituals. It's about the Savior. It's about a relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And they saw Him there and they said, Who do you think you are coming into our temple? and turn? First of all, whose temple is it? It's not theirs. It's the Lord's. And He went in there as one who took ownership of it. And the chief priests and the scribes were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the nation. But even after witnessing numerous miracles, hearing Jesus teach, they would still not believe. And this is why each one of us is to be like the Bereans. The Bible says to study study to show yourself approved. A workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Like I said earlier, the number one problem in the church today is biblical illiteracy. Why do people fall into cults? Why do people get duped into believing that someone is Jesus Christ coming back to earth again? Why do people follow David Koresh? Why do people fall, go down and drink Konai and Kool-Aid down in South America? Why do people do things like that? Because they don't know what the Bible says. Why do people fall into the trap of believing that the Muslim faith is a peaceful faith? 
Because they don't know the Jesus Christ of the Bible, and they don't know know the Muhammad of the Muslim faith. The Muslim faith is not a peaceful faith. First of all, it's not a faith at all. Amen? They don't believe in a true and risen living Savior. They don't know God. They believe in Muhammad. Muhammad was the prophet of the sword, and he killed. Now, the heart that we should have, and the desire that we should have, is to love the Muslims, and to pray for them. But at the same time, we should not be duped into believing that they're peaceful people. Because they will come against Israel before it's all over. Because we know the Bible says so. Amen? Now, we need to pray for them. We need to love them. We need to love everybody. But we need to realize again that only Jesus Christ is the answer. And there are no other faiths that are truly faith. The priests and the scribes and the elders had the same problem most people have today. They were unwilling to give up the throne. These guys were on the throne. These guys were the ones that were worshipped. They were the ones that people brought the tithes and the offerings to. Now in comes Jesus Christ, and He's messing up their gig, right? He comes in, and He's flipping the tables over. Wait a minute, we were getting a percentage of that, right? He comes in, and He stops them from doing all these false things in the, in the temple that should not have been done, and they don't, they don't appreciate it. Verse 29, But Jesus answered and said to them, So they ask Him two questions. How does Jesus Christ respond? He says, I will also ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus responds to their two questions by asking them one question. And the question that he asked them was to help them understand where his authority came from. It wasn't him avoiding their question, but he was asking them so that they would see where his authority came from. Verse 30, the baptism of John, he says, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. That's his question. Now, John the Baptist had come, and what had John the Baptist done? He had preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He was Jesus Christ's best man. He was the one that went through and told them, the Messiah is coming, be ready, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what did they do to John the Baptist? He went and told Herod, you're living with a woman that's not your wife. You're an adulterer. You need to stop it. And Herod's wife, Herodias, or the adulterous woman he was with, didn't like it, and had him beheaded. And he said to him, where did John the Baptist come from? You tell me by what authority he he baptized people, I'll tell you by what authority I'm here. And so, look at their response. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So what did they claim when they were asked about John the Baptist? What, were they, what did they claim? They claimed ignorance. They said, well, we don't know. Jesus answered and said, it says in John seven sixteen. Jesus answered and said to them, My doctrine is not mine, but, it, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak of my own authority. You know what? Only the Holy Spirit can help people to see that the Word of God is truly the Word of God. Amen? You know what? Without the Holy Spirit, people can read it and they don't get it. How many of you guys ever read the Bible before you were a Christian? Raise your hand. How many of you thought, what in the world is this all about? Right? Because until you have the Holy Spirit, you don't get it. And there were blinders on the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees. They could have turned to God, but they chose not to. And what did they claim? They claimed ignorance. Well, we, didn't, we don't know. We don't have an answer. They didn't want to deny John was a prophet, and their biggest concern was not a pursuit of truth, but their biggest concern was a fear of men. They were afraid of what people would think. And again, that hasn't changed today. We do not know. They avoided the dilemma by claiming ignorance. They had come questioning Jesus, seeking to destroy Him. Instead, the Lord questioned them. And the Lord's question was not a trap, but was yet another opportunity for them to realize and confess their blindness and ask for sight. But they instead chose to remain in darkness of their own stubborn will and self-condemnation. But Jesus is not going to let them go at that point. And I want to tell you this too. There are a lot of people that today say, I don't know when it comes to Jesus. Right? What do you think about Jesus? Oh, I don't know. Same thing that these men said. Let me tell you something. You're either for Him or you're against Him. Amen? There is no gray in the kingdom of God. There is no kind of saved. It's like being kind of pregnant, right? I mean, either you are or you're not. Either you know Him or you don't. Either you've been born again or you haven't been. And you can't be on your path to getting to know Jesus Christ. Either you've made a confession in Him or you've denied Him. 
And so the Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. And you know what? There's too many people trying to walk the road, one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. But you've got to have both feet in one place or the other. You know, the Bible says there's no one more miserable than the one that knows to do right and does not do it. If you know God and you've been born again, when you walk in the world, you're miserable. But you know what? The difference between a Christian and an unsaved person is that we flee from sin and they run to it. Amen? Do we continue to sin? The answer is yes. But when you sin, you're convicted. And if there's no conviction, there's been no conversion. Amen? If you can sin and you're not convicted, you've not been saved. And these men, when they ask about the authority, they say, well, we don't know. I have no idea. So let's try, try feng shui for a while and see if that makes me feel better, right? Let's walk on fire and see if that makes me feel better. You know, let me get into the yoga position, the lotus position, and hold on my, and maybe I'll feel better. Well, let me try drugs and alcohol. Maybe I'll feel better. Let me get the better job. If I can just get that promotion, maybe I'll feel better. The answer is that peace can only come from the Prince of Peace. Amen? You can't find it anywhere else. And if you're trying to find it in anything else, you never will because your flesh will never, ever, ever be satisfied. So Jesus doesn't leave them there. And this is we're going to finish in this parable here. And the, he takes them to a parable and he speaks to them a parable, which is an opportunity for them to see their need for a Savior. When the Lord gave parables, it was not to hide the truth from people. It was to reveal it to people who truly were hungry to know the truth. He gave them a parable and those who were hungry would see it. And those who were not hungry would not see it. Those who did not want to know God wouldn't have time and would not be, want to be bothered with it. So instead, the ungodly, these ungodly murderous thieves, he's going to reveal to them and give them an opportunity to know who John the Baptist was and by what authority he teaches. Look at chapter 12. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. So he, he plants a vineyard. He buys the land. He plants the vineyard which is a lot of hard work. He sets a hedge around it. That word for hedge could either be a stone wall or like a, a thorn bush that went all the way around. Hedge that went all the way around the property. Take time to make that grow and to put that into place. Then he dug a wine vat. That was the thing where the wine press would press and all the wine would go into it. They'd put all the wine into either jars or they would put it into wine skins. It says he also, then he says, and he, leased, and he built a tower. Now the tower was for safety. The tower was a place they could look and see if anybody was coming, make sure there was no fire or whatever was going on. It was also a place where they could shelter themselves. So after they got done working, they could shelter themselves within the tower. And then he leased it. He leaves it into the hands of caretakers who were to pay a certain percentage to him as uh, rental for what he gave to them. So basically, he did all the work, and he just gave it to these guys. Everything's ready to go, and he just says, Here, let me give this to you. I want to bless you, and all you have to do is give me a percentage of what this harvest reaps. So these men work it, and it says there in verse 2, Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. So vintage time means harvest time. And the servants here are a picture of the prophets. The, vine, the, the vineyard owner is God, and he leases the vineyard, right? And keep in mind, in those days, vineyards were everywhere, so they would relate it to this well. And he says he leases the vineyard to these guys, and he has servants who are the prophets who he sends back to bring forth some of the fruit. Now, the landowner is going to have, make numerous attempts to collect the fruit, but look what happens, verse 3. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, these are some good guys. You know, I, I, I've rented a house out before, you know, and I know some landowners, landlords, right? You've rented a house and you've got nightmare stories. Anybody who's ever rented a house has nightmare stories, right? You rent it out, the guy doesn't pay the rent, you know, and he... Burns hole in the carpet and all that. Well, he, le he leases this vineyard out that he spent years. It takes five years, by the way, before a, a vineyard produces fruit. So he's got it all ready for five years. These guys come waltzing in, and now it starts to produce fruit. All he wants is a small percentage of it. He sends someone back, and they beat the guy up and send him home. So they beat the first one and send him back. So what does he do in verse 4? Again, he sent another servant. And they threw stones at him, wounded him in the head, and sent him Away, shamefully treated. Now, what, right about now, you would think that the vineyard owner would be sending an army in to smoke these guys. But that's not what he does. In a picture of grace, look what he does in verse 5. And again, he sent another. And him they killed. And many others, beating some and killing some. So he continually sends more and more to collect what is rightfully his. And they keep beating them and killing those who've been sent. 
Now, again, everybody would say if he sent armies in, it would be totally fair. If he sent people in to take what belonged to him, it would be totally fair. But we're going to see a picture of God's grace in just a minute. Now, all these things that happen here, he's rebuking the scribes. He's rebuking the Pharisees. He's rebuking the chief priests. And let me tell you why. Because each one of these beatings corresponds with something that happened in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 22, Micaiah was struck on the cheek and imprisoned by the leader of the false prophets for speaking against them. Those that were in the temple. He went and said, you guys are a bunch of false prophets. And they beat him and they put him in prison. Zechariah was stoned with stones in the house of the Lord for speaking against idol worship by the religious leaders. So those who were in the temple were worshiping idols, and Zechariah went in and said, you guys are a bunch of idol worshipers. So what did they do? They stoned him with stones because he told the truth. We see in 2 Chronicles 36, they mocked, despised, and scoffed at the prophets of God for proclaiming the truth. In Nehemiah 9.26, they killed the prophets who testified against them. In Jeremiah 2, it says, your sword has devoured the prophets. In Matthew 5.11, it says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, for so they persecuted the prophets that went before you. This is a picture of what these guys have been doing, and the Lord is saying, I've seen every bit of it. They beat some, they mocked some, and they killed some. But what does the Lord do? He doesn't smoke them. Although that would be our, our, our inclination. Just like, you know, Shechem raping Dinah. My inclination would be, beat the guy senseless and ask questions later, right? Because I love my children. And the Lord loves His children. But look at the grace and the love and the mercy of our God. All you have to do is take a look at verse 6. Therefore, still having one son. Who do you think that's a picture of? Still having one son, His beloved. He also sent Him to them saying, They will respect My son. So they've been beating and killing and, and going after everybody He sends. And instead of sending armies, He sends His son. And you know what? We've done the same thing to the kingdom of God. Instead of sending the judgment that we deserve, He sent His Son out of His love for us, out of grace, and out of mercy. And look what it says in verse 7. But these vine vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Isn't that exactly what they were going to do to Jesus? When Jesus came, instead of receiving and honoring the Son, the men killed Him and cast Him out of the vineyard. You know, if we kill the heir, then everything will be ours because there won't be anybody to own it. And they felt the same way about Jesus Christ. Do you know that Jesus was killed? Where was He killed? Where was He crucified? Outside Jerusalem. What does it say in this verse? And they took Him and killed Him and cast Him out of the vineyard. This is a picture of Jesus. This is Jesus prophesying Himself about what was about to happen to Him. Man, you know, if anybody questions that Jesus Christ is God, if anybody questions, look at all the prophecies that are fulfilled by our Lord and our Savior. Amen? Nobody else could do it unless they were God Himself. It was not through their failure to recognize the Son that they killed Him. It was because they recognized Him for who He was that they slew Him. You notice that they didn't kill, they didn't kill the Son when He came, but they said, look, it's the heir. If we kill Him, then we'll have the whole vineyard to ourselves. And you know what? It's the same way with Jesus Christ. They did not kill Jesus out of ignorance. They killed Jesus because they did not want to give their lives to Him. They put Him to death rather than repent. The same thing is happening in the world today. You know, you talk about Jesus out loud and people get offended. Amen? You you get excited about the things of God, people don't like it. They want to take one nation under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance. They don't want the Ten Commandments on the wall. Thou shalt not kill. That will really corrupt our kids. We better get that down, right? I mean, they want us to be quiet about Jesus Christ. They want us to tone it down and dial it down and be, you know, just, you know, just go with the flow, man. Just fit into the world. And these men were the same way. They knew, who, they knew who the heir was, and they killed him because they did not want to give up the throne of their lives. And people today re- reject the claims of Jesus Christ not because they don't understand Him, but because they understand them all too well, and they, like the religious leaders, want to be on the throne. Why don't people give their life to Jesus Christ? Because they want to lead, they don't want to follow. They want to live their own life their own way. And let me tell you right now, that if, if you don't have Jesus Christ, you can have no peace. I don't do this anymore, but I used to go into chat rooms when, years ago when it first came up, and i just go and start telling people about Jesus. Man, you want to talk about violent reactions. Boy, I don't like that. People be talking about all kinds of stuff, and I'd, be, I'd just go in there and go, Hey! 
you know, how many, who knows that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God? He came and suffered and died that you might have eternal life. Did you know that? People are like, hey, get that out of this room. Well, we don't want to talk about that. Sex, we can talk about. Drugs, we can talk about. Money, we can talk about. And then I'd say, I'd say bro, you know, you know what? The Bible says that without him, you can have no peace. What do you mean I can't have peace? Right? They'd rather like, well, I can tell by your response you've got a lot of peace, right? I mean, there's no peace apart from the Prince of Peace. And there is no peace outside of God. And people want to be on the throne of their own life. And, and when you're on the throne of your own life, I promise you, you're going to be miserable. You can have temporary happiness, but you cannot experience eternal joy apart from Jesus Christ. And these men thought, if we just had the vineyard, then we'll be happy. No, you won't. You're going to have the vineyard, and you're still not going to have peace because you need to know the vine dresser. Amen? You need to know the King of Kings. If you don't know Him, the vineyard will bring you no joy. We're almost done here. Verse 9. Excuse me, verse 7. But these vine dressers said among themselves, let us kill Him. Verse 8. So they took Him and killed Him and threw Him out of the vineyard. Therefore, will not the owner of the vineyard, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Now this is a question that Jesus was asking. And Jesus answers the question in this text. But it says in Matthew that the people, the, the uh, Jews who were there also answered. And here's what they said. It's in Matthew chapter 21, verse 41, if you'll look at it later. And they said to Jesus, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit in their season. That's what the, that's what the scribes and the Pharisees said. They were casting judgment on themselves. They didn't even know it. Oh, I know what he'll do. He'll kill those wicked men. That's what he'll do. And, and you know what? He'll throw them out and he'll give the vineyard to somebody else who will do the right thing. Do you know that's exactly what was going to happen? Because guess what? Israel was going to be wiped out and the vineyard was going to go from the possession of Israel to the church. Acts chapter 2, we see the start of the church. Amen? And who did God use from that point forward? It was no longer Israel because Israel wasn't even there much longer. It was the church. And God started using the church and blessing the church because they were the ones who were faithful. Israel had been faithless. That's why God judged it. And you know what? We need to be careful because the church has become faithless. Amen? Haven't we? Hasn't the church gotten away from the truth? I don't mean, you know, individual churches. I mean the church in general. You know, we get up there and we're praying with the Hindus and the right every witch doctors, and we all get in the oh, it's all one God, it's all good. No, it's not. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. That's it. Amen. Buddha's dead. Hari Krishna dead. Joseph Smith Mormon Church dead. Mary Baker Eddy, who started the Church of Religious Science, she's dead. The head of Jehovah's Witness Church dead. Amen. Muhammad dead. Jesus Christ, risen, living Savior, triumphed over sin and death. Amen? And so their gods are not like our God. They're yelling down a well because there is no God for them to pray to. We pray to the true and living God. That doesn't make us greater than other people, but it means we have the answer. And we should not compromise. You know what? It grieves God when people put their arms around other people and pray to a bunch of false idols. Zechariah, as we just said, went and said, you guys are praying to false idols. We need to pray to Christ alone, in His name alone, for He alone is God and nobody else. And they said to him, they're going to kill him. He, he wipe out those wicked servants. And that's exactly what's going to happen. That's exactly what did happen. You know what? The same thing happened with King David. King David had taken Bathsheba. You guys know that story, right? And God sent a prophet by the name of Nathan to him. And he told him a story and said, hey, there's a man. and you know, He has all the lambs you could possibly want. There's another man who has this one little lamb that's precious that he raised from birth. And it's the most precious possession that he had. And this man with all the possessions went and stole his little lamb and killed it and ate it. What should we do? And David said, man, we're going to kill that guy. Well, we got to bring justice. Bring him to me. And Nathan said, you're the man. Oh, David, oh. Because it was about Bathsheba. He thought nobody knew. And David said, Nathan said, you're the man. What did David do? He repented. What do these guys do when confronted with their sin? They don't repent. When we sin, we can do one of three things. We can make excuses, we can accuse others, or we can repent. These guys accuse others. Oh, Jesus, it's Jesus. No, we've got to get rid of him. You know, make excuses. Oh, it's that woman you gave me. Right? That's what Adam said. You know, we're blaming on somebody else. It's my brother, right? Have you, my, you know what? Kids have the Adamic nature, don't they? The nature of Adam when they're born. My kids did not wake up, you know, when they're three years old going, oh yeah, dad, I did it. It was always, no, he did it, right? Isn't that what they do? And mind, it's always mind. It's not theirs, mind, and they're selfish, right? That's how they were born. They need to be born again. It's a picture of the Adamic nature at work. 
But we see here that they're proclaiming their own judgment. And this parable is prophetic as the wrath of God would come upon Jerusalem in the not-too-distant future. And the kingdom and all the spiritual advantage would be given to the church. Now, I want to say this real clear so there's no confusion. That doesn't mean that end times prophecy is pointing to the church and not Israel. When the Bible says Israel, it doesn't mean the church, it means Israel. Amen? A lot of times people go, oh, that must be the church. No, it's not the church, it's Israel. All right? But at the same time, Israel lost his blessing. Let me finish up, verse 10 and 11. Have you ever read this scripture? I love that. Have you even read? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the scribes. Don't they write the Bible? Right? The Pharisees, aren't they the ones, the chief priests in the church? Have you even read the scripture? He says to them, oh man, I like that. People thought, you know, Jesus, man, he got straight with people. You know, a lot of times I think Christians, we should walk around, don't say anything too direct. You might offend somebody. and Don't talk about sin. They won't come back to your church. And, you know, sermonettes for Christianettes don't talk, talk more than 12 minutes because, you know, people's attention span and have bows of the clown for the kids. And, you know what I mean? Just make it relevant to today and preach to people's felt needs. And your church will really grow. Yeah, you're a bunch of people that don't know God, but your church will be really big. You know, that's not what it's about. I, I have no problem telling you guys you're a bunch of stinking sinners just like me. Amen? Some of you might get offended and not come back. That's okay. But you're sinners in need of a Savior, and so am I. Amen? And you know what? If we don't talk about it. So it says here that, he says, Have you even read the Scripture? Have you read it? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief corner stone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone which the builders rejected, who's the stone? Jesus Christ. There it is. When was He rejected? When he was crucified. And how did he become the chief cornerstone? At his resurrection. Amen? How many other... Did Muhammad raise from the dead? How about Joseph Smith, the Mormon church? How about any other prophet? They died, they stayed dead. Amen? I go dig them all up right now. We can go find their graves. Their bones are there. Amen? You go to the grave where they put Jesus Christ and nothing's there. It's an empty tomb. Amen? And that is the chief cornerstone of the church. Without the resurrection, we are the most pitiable of all men. That's what the Bible says. If we don't have the resurrection, we're just following blind. We have nothing to fo- But with the resurrection, it's the proof that Jesus Christ is God. Amen? And I lo- I lo- Our God is a risen living Savior. He quotes the Messianic Psalm informing the Jewish leaders that the son who was killed and thrown out of the vineyard is also the chief cornerstone and the redemptive plan. Often in the Old Testament, God is referred to as a rock or a stone. The stone is also a Messianic title. When the temple was under construction, the stones were quarried miles away and transported to the Temple Mount. These stones were massive. They were 40 feet wide and 20 feet high. And if it fell on you, it would crush you to death. Jesus Christ is the rock. To the Jews, he was a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, those who did not believe. To the Gentiles, he is a smiting stone of Daniel chapter 2, where it says the stone that was cut without hands came down and crushed the vision, right? You guys know the story of Daniel chapter 2. But to believers, he is the foundation stone. He is the rock upon which we stand. So either you will fall on him and be saved, or he will fall upon you and you will be crushed. It's a picture of both grace and a picture of judgment. Our God is a God of love and grace and mercy, but His mercy will end at some point, and there will be judgment. Amen? But His judgment will be fair. His judgment will be righteous. His judgment will be true. The wise man builds his house upon a rock. Last verse, I promise. Verse 12. And they sought to lay hands on Him, but feared the multitude. For they knew He had spoken the parable against them, so they left Him and went away. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders were completely aware that Jesus Christ was condemning their actions, but it only aroused their hatred, not their repentance. This was just like Nathan. You're the man. And they could have said, you know what, we are the men. Let's repent. But they didn't do it. In review, we saw the power of faith that... No obstacle is too great for our God. Amen? No matter what you're going, what's going on in your life tonight, I want you to know that God is greater than that. Greater is He that is in me than He that is in the world. The obstacle of the building we're going to meet in. You know, the obstacle of sickness. The obstacle of anything else that's going on in life. Don't worry. God is greater than that. There's a necessity for forgiveness. We need to forgive others as Christ forgave us. The questioning about Jesus' authority, He is the only authority. Amen? There is no other name among heaven among, among, uh, through which men must be saved. Sorry, guys. The parable of the vineyard. Israel rejected Jesus and they killed Him. And the vineyard was given to the church, those who would truly follow God. May we be faithful with what we've been given. Amen? I want you guys to know, and I love this parable, 
you know, the electric company doesn't take all the lights in Santa Cruz and put them on one street corner. Because if they did, there'd be a big halogen light in one spot and everybody else would be pitch black. And God doesn't put all the Christians to work in the same office building. He puts you all over the place. And sometimes you might feel alone. But know that God has you there to be the light for a reason. Amen? God's put you in your office. You might say, man, I'm the only one here. Well, praise the Lord you're there. It'd be pitch black without you. Amen? And God wants to use you to shine the truth to a lost and dying world. You know what? Let's be contagious Christians. Can I encourage you with something this week? If you haven't done this before, take your Bible to work. Amen? Take it to work. Take it with you to work. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be faithful to your master and do your job as unto the Lord, but start praying for divine appointments at work and opportunities to share your faith. Pray for opportunities to share your faith with your neighbors. There's people that need Jesus desperately. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you have forgiven us, that you're a merciful and a gracious God. And Lord, we cry out to you, Lord, in desperation for the city of Santa Cruz. Lord, it's so lost and so far away from you, Lord. But Father, I thank you. The Lord, you've called us to be the salt and the light of this place. And Lord, we know it's not because we're righteous or because we're good, but Lord, just because of your grace that you've shown upon each one of our lives. Father, may we never be self-righteous, never think we're better than somebody else. But Lord, may we have a heart that's broken for those who don't know you. Lord, may we have that heart of forgiveness where whether we've been mocked or beaten or scourged, that Lord, we we would send our son as you sent your son. Lord, we love you and we praise you, Lord. We pray for revival in this county. We pray, Lord, it would begin in each one of our homes. Bring revival in each one of our own lives, Lord. And help us, Father God, to show love and grace to, to a lost and dying world. We thank you. We praise you for tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. The kids will be up in a minute. There's coffee and stuff back there, so just help yourself. Hang out. We've got the place for another hour. Just hang out and fellowship. And again, remember the midweek studies. And if your name, if you want to go um, down to...